You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Okay, our teaching text this morning is Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths, Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closet friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do your spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. It is really hard to say this is the word of the Lord to a psalm like that. But apparently, it is. Apparently, this is God's word to us today. And we've been in the middle of a series talking about deconstruction, but also talking about the possibility of renovation. And part of that process, as Patrick outlined in the first week, is grief. What role does grief play in the process of restoration? And is grief even restorative? Is there there a restorative capacity for grief? Can grief actually lead us to God? And so this is our goal today, to walk through Psalm 88 together in order to discover the restorative capacity of grief in our own lives and how at the very center of grief we somehow paradoxically in the dark find light. The Cambridge Dictionary defines grief as, defines grief as this, deep sorrow, especially at the death of someone. The word grief actually traces its origin back to a proto-Indo-European word for heavy. So this is poignant, that grief is connected with weight. That grief is the thing that weighs down upon us. It's the thing that lowers our back. It's the thing that feels like that weighted blanket that's pushing me deeper and deeper, further and further into the proverbial pit. Grief is that weight we all carry, that that loss that sits at the core of who we are. 
Grief is heavy. It's weighted. It's, it's powerful. It, it drags us down. Grief is a thing we hold trudgingly, walking down the road of life, trying to make our way. So for our purposes, I would like to define grief as this. As the deep sorrow that weighs on the soul after a significant loss. When we experience loss, when we experience some sort of disconnection between what we believe about our life, what we believe about the world, and what's actually happening, there is a loss. And sorrow sets in. And the, the sun seemingly sets and darkness begins. It's what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. That moment where despite the light outside, all is dark within. C.S. Lewis says this about grief. He says this in his book, A Grief Observed, a book he wrote in response to the loss of his wife. For in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I am on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up? Or down? How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I have never realized my loss until this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. And that is the question. In our grief, are we spiraling upwards? Or downwards in our grief? Is it taking us closer to God and his presence or is it taking us deeper and deeper into the pit? See, this psalm is unique in that it, it is, is a lament psalm, which is a, was a type of psalm, a genre of psalm that laments about the human condition, laments about the situations that happen in life. But the thing about in the Psalms, the, the lament often has what's called a turn, where the grieving is done and the praise begins. Psalm 88 is unique in that there is no turn, and if we just finished reading it, you know that to be true. There is no turn toward praise. There is no praise break in the middle. There is no shouting. There is no hooping. There is no hollering. There is just darkness. And so, if we're honest, this is often our experience of grief. There is no praise before the breakthrough. There is no sunshine. There is just darkness. And so we have to wrestle with the reality of our grief. And the question is, where does that grief come from, that deep-seated grief? What is the loss we are grieving? Well, when it relates to deconstruction and the, the questions we carry... Grief is rooted in the experience, and the experience of grief is rooted in the question, is God who he says he is? See, we mentioned a moment ago that the definition of grief is significant sorrow after a loss. And for many of us, the deep grief we carry is at the loss of God, that the picture of God 
the God we thought we knew, the God we thought we worshipped, when we look at our lives, when we look at what's happening around us, does not seem to be the God in our imaginations. At worst, God seems vindictive and sadistic. And if it's not as bad, maybe he's just apathetic. And this is the loss we experience when it comes to deconstruction. The God that we believe in does not seem to be the God that actually exists. The God of love and kindness and justice does not seem to exist in a world filled with hatred, bitterness, and injustice. The God that's close to the brokenhearted does not seem to exist when it, he seems silent prayer after prayer. And it's this incongruence of character. It's that loss that begins our grief. If I can share a bit, bit with you guys about my life. When I was 13 years old, my, my dad disappeared, literally. He had gone on a business trip, and you know, you expect people to come back from a business trip, but on the day you're supposed to come back, I remember coming from home from school, I just started high school, and I remember coming home and seeing my mom in the living room crying. And she had just gotten a voicemail saying, my dad saying he wasn't coming back. This was it. He was done. He's going to start a new life somewhere else. And I remember being upset, being angry, being sad. But as time went on and we didn't continue to hear from him, the, the, the source of the deep grief I felt wasn't necessarily that he left wasn't necessarily that he had done something horrible to us. It was that who I knew my dad to be seemed like a lie. And that loss, that, that for those of you, if, if you have a, a certain relationship with your father, your father might be your hero. My father was my hero. He was a, a, a man of God. He was serving in church. He would travel and preach. He would, he would do all these things and all of a sudden, when that person says, I'm out, I'm gone, the loss, the grief, is that, was that all a lie to begin with? Was, it, was that ever who he was? And, and that's often our experience with God. When stuff happens and, and we, we intercede, we get on our knees and cry out to God and there's no response. When we look at the, the, the things that have happened to us and we ask the question, how could a good God allow this to happen to me or the people I love? The loss we're feeling is that loss, that, that, the incongruence between God and this is who you say you are, but you're, these, what's happening seems to say otherwise. And then we begin to ask, is, is God really the God of our salvation? And this is where we come to Psalm 88. And before we kind of explore the psalm together and unpack it, two things I want to just note. Number one, just a general note on reading the psalms. St. Athanasius writes this. He says, in the Psalter, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in all its movements, all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. But the marvel with the Psalter is that the reader takes all its words upon his lips as though they were his own, written for his special benefit. My, and my encouragement to you today, as we explore this psalm, is not to treat this as a theoretical journey. Don't treat this psalm as, as, as some sort of 
you know, learning or reading exercise. Often when we come to church and we hear scripture preached, the, the danger is to theologize, to, to keep it something that's entirely here, to keep it some sort of mental, metaphysical exercise. But that's not what the Psalms ask us to do. The Psalms ask us to enter in. The Psalms serve as a mirror. They show us ourselves. And so the only way to properly read the Psalms is to take their words and make them our own. And so today, the encouragement is, as we read this Psalm, is make this your Psalm. Make this your words, your prayer. And secondly, Psalm 88 is a very personal Psalm. All the language is about me, it's about I, it's in the first person. This psalmist is writing this. And so the danger here is to assume that, that prayers like this are private prayers. That words like this are the words I say to myself in the quiet of my room when I wrestle with God and I weep and I anguish over the grief I'm experiencing. But... Well, from what we know about the psalm, that this psalm was actually a part of the communal worship of Israel, which means people gathered together and sang this song together. People sang the words, do you still work wonders for the dead? Which means our exploration of our grief is not a private affair. At the end of this sermon, we're, we're going to offer some space for response and the temptation would be, with, especially with a topic like this, to sit by myself in my seat and process. And I'm here to let you know that is a very Western approach to healing. It's a very isolated, individualistic approach to processing. But the reality is, is that when it comes to something like grief, the best thing we can do is explore it together. And so when we open up this space later, I encourage you to take advantage because this is what the body of Christ does. Now, let's dive into the psalm. So the psalm begins with an introduction, O Lord God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. This is a sense of irony here. Because when we read the rest of the psalm, we know the psalmist doesn't actually believe that God is the God of his salvation. And so, though this is the appropriate way to begin an address to God, it's loaded with this sense of irony and tragedy because this God, this God of salvation doesn't seem to exist for the psalmist. In fact, it's almost as if he's asking permission. He, he's wondering, Lord, will you hear my prayer? Let my prayer come before you. In other words, what's implied here is that he doesn't think God is listening. And so he has to sort of prep God and, and get him going. He has to rev him up and say, God, listen, you haven't been listening as of right now, and so would you please incline your ear to me? Because it seems like you're not. And so it seems like a very pious opening is actually the words of a skeptic saying, God of my salvation, in quotes, are you even listening? Because it doesn't seem like it. So if you are listening, just a reminder, incline your ear to me. Let my prayer come before you because it seems like you've you got a bouncer at the door and you're not letting them come into your throne room. 
This psalmist begins with a claim and a cry. He's asking, is God the God of my salvation and does he hear my cry? As a good Israelite, that's what he should believe. God, Yahweh, is the God of Israel. God is in covenant relationship with his people. God should be the one who hears their cry. That's the story the psalmist grew up with, the story of the Exodus, where God heard the cries of his people and found them and freed them from Pharaoh. But this is not the psalmist's experience. Experience. God is quiet. He is absent. And he doesn't just seem to be the source of his salvation. He actually seems to be the source of his troubles. The psalmist goes on to describe his condition. He says this, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is the the conception of the Hebraic conception of the underworld, or the place of the dead. It was a place of total separation from life. Matter of fact, the scholars debate that the origin of the word Sheol comes from this conception of a what we would call like a no land or, or, or desolate land. That this, that this conception, this place of, this, of the psalmist's soul is actually in this place of complete uncreation, complete darkness, complete emptiness. Because in the Hebraic imagination, when you died, you were separated from God. God is the God of life. God is the author of creation. And so what does it mean to die? It means to be separated from the source of life. And so those who die, their souls would descend to the pit and be separated from God. This is the condition of the psalmist's soul. He is utterly separated from God. There is no glint of light. There is no hope. He is in Sheol. Though he lives, he is in the place of the dead. And because of this, he says, I'm like those who have no help, like those forsaken, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And how many of us feel like this right now? We're here. We hear the songs. The team did an incredible job. We prayed. We mouthed along to the prayer of confession. We we listened to the assurance but felt nothing, empty. There's no voice in the back of your ear saying, yes, I'm here, I love you. There's no feeling of exuberance or joy as we lift up God's name in worship. It's just dead, silence, white noise. And so what the psalmist is telling us is that it is possible to be in covenant relationship with God and yet feel like we are completely cut off. It is possible to confess that Jesus is Lord and not feel his presence. And this is the reality of part of the Christian journey, part of the journey of faith, is there are moments where we say all the right words and we do all the right things and we make all the right right moves when we show up and show out and yet nothing. We feel cut off. We look to our neighbor, to our left, and to our right and realize, how come they can hear and not me? How come they seem to have a connection and not me? Why do they seem like to have a direct line to the throne room of heaven and my requests, my prayers fall on empty ears? And this is what begins the grief. Because God said he would be near to the brokenhearted. God said 
He is faithful to his promises. God said, even when I'm faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God said, even if you make your bed in hell, I am with you. Where is that God? That is the question some of us are asking today. Because we're here, we're listening, we showed up, and nothing. And we... We're like an empty shell. We walk around. We, we, we have a smile on our faces. We, you know, we know how to go through the motions, but it's all dead in here. Why? We feel cut off from God. But, see, we can feel cut off from God for a variety of reasons, right? We could, because stuff is happening to us, right? If we're going through heartache or loss or we're grieving a death. But the psalmist isn't just talking about external things that are happening here. This is not just a psalmist lamenting his condition. We have plenty of psalms about that. When David is surrounded by his enemies on all sides, he laments. He says, God, I'm surrounded by my enemies. They're drawing near. Death draws near. There's other psalms where talk about sickness and, and how sickness is overtaking the body. And, and God, I need you to rescue me from this pain, this, this pain in my bones. No, this isn't just a lament about external situations happening to the psalmist. This is actually an accusation. The psalmist isn't just saying this stuff is happening to me. He's saying, God, you're the cause of it. And this is the source of the grief. This is the next step. This is what happens when we feel forsaken for, for long enough, when we feel disconnected for long enough. All of a sudden, sometimes, at first we'll put it on, our, on us, right? We'll say, man, I'm, maybe I'm not praying hard enough. Maybe I don't know how to listen. Maybe, man, I'm really bad at Lectio Divina. I don't know how to do contemplation. Maybe that's why I'm not hearing God. But it's, we try. We get some new books. We, 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 we take a course. We, we, we talk with friends and community groups and still nothing. And so that emptiness begins to transform into an accusation. And we say, no, I, this can't be me. I, like, I know I'm messed up, I know I'm human, I know I don't always get it right, but come on, like, I'm ticking all the boxes. This, this can't be me. This has to be God. And so the accusation comes. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. It's not the situation that's put me in the pit. It's not my, my decisions have put me in the pit. There's no evidence of any sin in this psalm. So we're, all we know, this is a righteous man who's trying to be faithful to Yahweh. No, no, no. There's none, no evidence that this is his fault. No, no. He's saying very clearly, I'm in the pit. I'm in the dark. I'm in Sheol because of you. In this psalm, God is the antagonist. God is the enemy. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with your waves. In other words, God's only response seems to be to allow the psalmist to get battered by waves of grief and loss and anger. God is silent, and his only response seems to be to allow the psalmist to persist in the pit. And you, you can imagine the sense of loss here. God is supposed to be the God of his salvation. God is supposed to be the God in whom there is no shadow or turning. And yet it seems like God is the enemy. 
God is the one who has utterly rejected him. For seemingly no fault of his own, God has abandoned him. And not just his, not God, God's just not, not just being inactive. He's actively putting the psalmist in the pit, or so it seems. And, then he, and he says this, he says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. That, the, that it is not just his relationship with God that is broken, but it's his relationship with his friends, his family. And again, this is put on God. It's not just his fam- friends and family have abandoned him. It's because God has caused them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Grief has the capacity to dim our sight where all we see is our grief. All we see is pain. All we see is loss because that's all we can discern in the world. And then he says, every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. This sounds really pious, but it's, it's just another repetition that he does this every day and yet there's no response. Every day I call on you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you, God. Where are you? Like I'm doing it. I'm going through the motions. Like I'm faithful. Like I pray morning, noon, and evening. Every day I call on you. I spread out my hands and there is no reply. And it's this, this disconnection between who God says he is and how he seems to be acting in the psalmist's life that's the cause of the psalmist's grief. I think for many of us, is the cause of our grief. For we grew up believing something about God. We grew up singing all the right songs, and we, we grew up knowing all the right verses about God's character, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his truth. And yet, when we look at our lives and we look what's happening to us, it seems like the only person who can be, have the blame put on them is God. It seems like God is actually the source of our trouble. God is actually the source of our pain. You know, it's... It was a great question after World War II and the events of World War I and World War II as we kind of moved into the, in, into the 20th century after the two world wars that people began to question, what's, what's the role of God in a world after the Holocaust? What's the role of God in the world after two wars that took millions and millions and millions of souls? And that was a question Christians and, and Jews alike had to wrestle with. What's the role of a good, loving, purposeful God in something like this. Why? Because there seems to be a disconnection between the God who loves and, and wants to preserve life and yet the allowance of mindless and rampant death. And on our own scales of our lives, these disconnections happen too. And many of us, we're at the point where the only person we have left to blame is God. And that is the source of our grief. And we're here, but we're not here because we're angry and we're bitter and God seems to be our enemy. But it's actually the accusation, it's actually the grief that brings the psalmist to an interesting place. See, he begins to philosophize, which is a weird thing to do in the middle of grieving. He's, he's weeping, he, he's mourning, he's crying out, he's cursing God, and yet he turns, he becomes a philosopher out of nowhere. And he begins to ask questions. And he says this, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in oblivion? Are your wonders known in darkness? 
Is your saving help known in the land of forgetfulness? See, these questions are rhetorical questions. At this point, he's throwing questions into the void. He's saying, God, listen, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're not there. I don't know if you're listening. I don't know if you're actively ignoring me, but I got some questions, okay? Do you work wonders for the dead? Can shades rise up to praise you? The souls of the dead, can they rise up to praise you? Is your love, can it be declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness known in oblivion? Because he's asking these questions because this is exactly where he is. And so he's asking God, he's imploring God, listen, if you do have indeed have power, if you indeed are loving, maybe you can show up and show me right now. These questions are less questions and more like a challenge. God, are you really the author of life? God, you're really the good, faithful God of Israel. God, you're, you're really the one who has power over life and death, so show me. Show up right now in the midst of the grave. Show up now in the midst of my stuff. Show up right now in the midst of this trial. Show up right now, because as of right now, it seems like you're not living up to your name. And I wonder if us have ever been bold enough to pray that prayer, to ask God those questions. Because at some point, Listen, we've already gone as far enough to accuse him of, of causing this for all of us. We might as well take it further and begin to and ask him questions. God, are you really the God and author of life? God, you actually love me. Do you actually love people like me? Are you actually faithful to your promises or that all talk? And these are the questions the psalmist asks. And at face value, right, the psalm ends. He continues to accuse God. He continues to feel God is absent. But these questions hang in the middle of the psalm, and they almost beg us to wonder if there's an answer. Because what we also have to remember is this psalmist has a limited perspective. This psalmist knows nothing of the cross. He knows nothing of the resurrection. He knows nothing of the person of Jesus. And it's actually questions like these, these challenges we loft at God in the middle of our grief, these questions are actually where we find the restorative power of grief. When we are bold enough to say, God, listen, the only enemy I seem to have is you. And it seems like your power and, and your glory and your strength and your truth aren't working. And where we're bold enough to say, God, do you work wonders for the dead? that it's in those questions God actually wants to work. See, verses 10 to 12 are presented as challenges to God's power over death. The psalmist is begging the question, if you're so great, if you're so powerful, can you work wonders for the dead? And it's these questions here that are charged with prophetic resonance because the psalmist we don't know if he ever gets his answer. We don't know if he, his lament eventually, eventually turns towards praise. But we do know this, that in the book of Revelation, the risen Christ stands before St. John, and he says this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. See, the psalmist is asking a prophetic question. Do you work wonders for the dead? Which Jesus responds, yes, I do. 
When the psalmist asked, can your love be made known in the grave? Jesus said, yes, it can. When the psalmist asked, hey, listen, in the middle of oblivion, can your faithfulness be known? Jesus says, yes, it can. See, in the middle of our grief, grief brings us to this place where all we have left are questions. And all we have left is to ask the bold questions that a comfortable faith isn't bold enough to ask. See, when we hold our faith comfortably, when, when we haven't been through anything, when nothing seems to have phased us, we're in that honeymoon stage of our relationship with Jesus, we, we don't know to ask the hard questions. We take what we know about God for granted. But see, belief about God only is truly of value, value when it's tested and tried. Because if God can survive our questions from the pit of our grief, then surely he's a God worth following. If God couldn't respond to the psalmist's questions, then maybe this God thing shouldn't work out. Maybe we, should, we shouldn't be here this Sunday. Maybe we should find a different place to show up and give our worship. But if God truly can meet us in the pit of our grief and respond to these questions, then maybe he is a God who can restore us and bring us to life. See, in the incarnation, Jesus takes on the fullness of the human condition, including dying. And by descending to the grave, by, 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 in the Apostles' Creed where it says, he has descended into hell, that Jesus, the living one, the second person of the Trinity, the, the eternal son, takes on human frame and says, I'm going to become what they are so they can become what I am. I'm going to take on their frailty and their pain and their suffering. I am going to grieve with them. I'm going to doubt with them and say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to so enter into their condition that I can experience everything they've experienced, including the descent into death. And it's there at the bottom of the pit. It's there in the middle of Sheol. It's there in the middle of the grave that Jesus sanctifies grief. And Jesus sanctifies death. Because this is the great paradox, the great hope of the Christian story. That through death, there is life. By dying, we live. And through grieving, we are restored. Because Jesus... It descends deep into the darkness of the human condition because he experiences the totality of human violence and grief and suffering. Jesus is able to sanctify it and transform it and use it as a catalyst for life. See, when we are at our deepest, darkest moments, when, when the loss, the, the incongruence between who God says he is and what we're seeing around ourselves, when we're in that place, that pit, when all we have left are questions and accusations and challenges, Jesus comes and meets us in that place because that's the place he's often found. That Jesus isn't just the ascended, risen one. He's also the one who died and descended. And because he entered that place, because he entered darkness and death, he has the capacity to meet us there. And that is the great mystery, is that when Christ meets us in the depth of our grief, it's often not to answer all the questions. It's, we, we, we talked about Job last Sunday, and if you know the story of Job well, Job never gets an answer. He, he never gets a reply, he never gets a rebuttal 
to his litany of accusations and questions, what he does get is God's presence. God himself meets him. And this is the hope and promise of Jesus. The promise of, of Jesus has never been to sort out our, all our intellectual ducks in a row. The, the, the promise of Jesus has never been to explain every single why, every single thing that has happened to us in our lives. The promise of Jesus is not to explain away our grief, but to enter into it. Often we want our grief, we want our grief explained. We, we want our loss explained. We want what's happened to us explained. We want answers. And, and that, that is a natural human condition. Because who, want, who wouldn't want to know why terrible things have happened to them? But what Scripture seems to say and what, what the witness of the Scriptures seem to be is that even if we got those answers, it may not satisfy us. And so what could satisfy us is the very presence of God in the midst of our grief. A, a direct encounter with his divine love and presence that is so transformative and so powerful, it doesn't dismiss our grief, it doesn't ask us to shove our grief to the side, but it enters into it and says, there could be life here. And that is the restorative power of grief, that Christ has entered into our grief and sanctified it, and says, in this deep, dark place, this is where you find me. It's not always in the mountaintops. It's in the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. It's in the presence of enemies that a table is prepared. Or as the great Russian writer Dostoevsky in his book Crime and Punishment says, he says, the darker the night, the brighter the stars. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. And I think this is why it's worth following the train of, of the psalmist, allowing ourselves to pray prayers like this, allowing ourselves to descend to the pit of our grief because it's there God wants to meet us. And it's there God wants to use grief as a catalytic event to transform us and to work in us. It's not to dismiss our grief or to pretend like it never happened, but it's actually through it he wants to meet us and love us. And he can do it because he did it himself. He descended to the pit of human suffering. And so, it's almost as, as if, by including Psalm 88 in scripture, which is what we believe about scripture is this, that, that it's a human and divine work. That Psalm 88 is the real production of someone going through grief. That Psalm 88 is the song, a prayer, written in the face of real suffering and loss. And yet, it's writing, it's inclusion in the Psalms is inspired by God, which means God wanted us to know that prayers like this are legitimate. And that sometimes the only way to meet God is to be honest enough to say, I am grieving, you feel gone, this is your fault, and can you work wonders in the midst of this death I'm feeling? And so, the worship team come join me. We're going to um, worship and reflect for a bit. But before we do, I think it's worth having a moment of examination. Grief is complex and complicated. And 
we can talk for days on how to, you know, more practically deal with grief and talk about how to explore the avenues of, of therapy and, and spiritual direction and, and the roles these things can play in exploring grief. But there, I, I don't want us to, to rush past the, what, what moments like this can do for our grief, for our suffering, for our questions we have about God. You know, we have a tendency in, in, in our Western minds to disassociate our spirits from our bodies or our spirits from our minds. And we'll say, you know what, like, I'll, I'll do my mental stuff, mental health stuff over here and deal with my grief here. And, but in these spiritual spaces, like, you know, I'm sure, like, they'll be, they'll be nice and they're, they're comforting. But, like, can, I, you know, do I really trust God to, like, wrestle my grief out here in this space? But St. Thomas Aquinas said, he says, we are ensouled bodies and embodied souls. In other words, to be human is not to have a body and a soul, but to have bodies that are souls, that our mental health and our spiritual health are wrapped up together. They are knitted together because we are whole humans. And so this moment here is a moment to kind of embrace that and say, I'm not just going to wait till I get outside to deal with grief, or, or I'm not going to separate my, my, my dealing with grief from any sort of spiritual experience. I'm actually going to knit those things together and pursue them together, because actually this is where God wants to meet me, and God can work wonders here. Because that is what we believe, that God is working and is powerful, that he's not distant, and he's not like a, the God of the deists who he kind of set the clock in motion and abandoned us. No, 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 that he wants to meet us here, now. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you guys an examine, which is a, a form of, of, of spiritual contemplation in which we take a look inward. And the four points of this examine follow the psalm, Psalm 88. Number one, in these, as, a, as the band plays behind me in a moment, I want you to take some time to explore the source of your grief. What's that loss? What's that disconnection between God his, and his character and what we're seeing in the world that has caused you to grieve? What's that thing? Then I want you to be honest. Identify ways in which God seems absent. I, I put the word seems there because what we do know to be true and can hold is that God may seem absent, but he's, like we just said, he's actually present with us in the darkness. But what are, what are the ways in which he seems absent? Maybe it's unanswered prayer. Maybe it's a feeling of, of, of spiritual dryness. Maybe it's an inability to even pick up your word and read. Maybe it's just like you're trying to connect and find community and you're just not clicking with anyone. And then I want you to be honest and express your frustration, your anger, your resentment and pain to God. And maybe your anger, resentment and pain about God. You know, we, we, we can't, we can't you know, be more pious than the scriptures. If you're saying, well, you know, Ryan, I, you know, like, I, who am I to, you know, curse God right now and, and, be, and say I'm angry with him and I resent him and this is his fault? Well, God gave you permission by including Psalm 88 in the scriptures. As, always he's saying, as if he's saying, I can take it. I'll be fine. I don't need you to defend me from myself. And lastly, ask God for the grace to see Christ at work in the midst of your grief. Ask God for the ability to see how Christ has entered into your grief and your suffering because that is what he's promised to do and that is what he's did, what he did on the cross when he descended to death. He descended to this point here, the midst of your grief. 
And so we're going to take the next few moments to do that. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have a moment to respond. And my encouragement to you is, if the people of Israel prayed this psalm aloud in community, then it makes absolutely no sense to sit quietly by yourself and process this. It makes more sense to come up for prayer and receive prayer today. Let me pray for us. Father, sometimes you seem absent. And sometimes life is so chaotic and crazy and full of trauma and loss that all we, sometimes all we feel we can do is blame you. Say, God, like, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Why did you let this happen, God? God, why are you hurting me in this way? God, God, why don't you answer or respond? God, would you help us to pray those prayers today to God? But as we pray those prayers, as we ask those questions, as we, as we dare to say, do you work wonders for the dead? Would you show us your son in the midst of it? who descended to the place of the dead and said, yes, I do work wonders among the dead. Yes, I do show my faithfulness in the grave. Yes, my love can be known in oblivion. Yes, I do descend to Sheol. I meet you there in the midst of your grief and because I promise my presence in the midst of it. And I promise through it I can restore you. So would you give us the boldness to pray like the psalmist who wrote Psalm 88? Give us the boldness to say what we need to say to you, God. Because often, you only speak when we've gotten everything off our chest. So if this is a real relationship, Jesus, if you're really our Father, God, then give us the boldness to say what we need to say to you so that you might meet us in the middle of it. In Christ's name, amen.